What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. My name is Al Brady, and I want to welcome you to this broadcast tonight. We're focusing on the neighbor. So I'm so delighted you've joined me. And I hope that you will remember to invite others to join us in the future. Would you please join me now as I read the scripture lesson. It comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at the 25th verse. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he turned out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, your will, your will be done. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a boy, I had a horse named Dixie. Dixie was a gift from my father, a 10-year-old pinto mare. At the time, I was grieving the loss of my only cat, White Sox. But needless to say, when I got the gift of the horse, my grieving was cut way short. Now, Dixie was a fun horse, but who had a mind of her own. She ran me through a barbed wire fence and left a scar on my lip. One day, I tried to jump over the rear end into the saddle. She kicked, and you can imagine that hurt. And then at night, Dixie liked to get out and roam through the neighbor's gardens. Quite often, I would get the phone call in the night, Hal, come get your horse. She's messing up our garden. As I said, when I was growing up, I had a horse named Dixie. Well, in this parable before us today, there's a donkey named Grace. Let me explain this to you. The question was asked by a Ph.D. expert in the law of Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The occasion was the lawyer's attempt to put Jesus on the defensive. He certainly wanted to know what Jesus thought about the central issue of the faith, but he was more concerned with making a good showing of himself. At any rate, it was very disconcerting that Jesus would simply say to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? As if to say you're the expert in the law, you ought to know the answer to this. Well, the lawyer recovered somewhat, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So he did recover in some ways. But now the lawyer was placed in a bad light. And so the next thing he asked was, how would you define neighbor and who is my neighbor? You see, he wanted to discuss what it meant to be a neighbor. He wanted to discuss the philosophy of neighborliness. He wasn't interested in how to be a neighbor. He just wanted to discuss the whole subject. My, oh my, how we love and respect Jesus for his answer. He simply told him a story. He said there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves and robbers. 
They beat him, robbed him, stripped him, and left him for half dead. Then Jesus said, in a little while, a priest came by, took a look at him, and then just passed by on the other side. And a few minutes later, a Levite came by, did the same thing, did likewise. But in a little while, a Samaritan came by. The Samaritan came by, stopped, and saw what was going on. He knelt and helped the man. Then he put him on his donkey and took him to an inn. Now, the message of this particular parable is extremely clear. Jesus wants us to think again about what it means to be a true neighbor. First of all, a true neighbor knows no boundaries. A true neighbor knows no boundaries. In the parable, Jesus makes it clear that neighborliness knows no boundaries. He never identifies the victim. Notice that the victim is simply a man, which means he could be a male, a female, a friend, a foe, or whoever. A victim is anybody in need. So is a neighbor. The Samaritan simply put himself into the situation of the wounded man. He had compassion on him. Compassion means to suffer with. And so this Samaritan suffered with the man that he was helping out there on the road. E. Stanley Jones was a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary before he became a missionary to India. Now, in the process of being a missionary to India, he met Gandhi, and he got to know Gandhi, and sometime later he wrote a biography of Gandhi that so impressed Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. that he committed himself to nonviolence in the American Civil Rights Movement. Gandhi's relationship with the Christian faith is very complicated, but Gandhi loved Jesus Christ, and he wanted the Indian culture to be exposed to what Christ had to offer. When E. Stanley Jones asked Gandhi how that might happen, this is what Gandhi said. He gave him four answers. First of all, he said, I would suggest that all of you Christians, missionaries, and all begin to act more like Jesus. Begin to act more like Jesus. Jones said he didn't really have to say anything else. That was clear enough. Secondly, Gandhi said, I would suggest that you must practice your religion without adulterating or toning it down. He said a mild Christianity is absolutely of no use in the world. Thirdly, he said, I would suggest that you live a life of love. That is at the center and soul of the Christian faith. Live a life of love. And then fourthly, Gandhi said, I want to suggest that you look sympathetically at non-Christian religions because that will help you to be more sympathetic to the people that you're dealing with in the world. As Gandhi observed, Christian identity in a multi-faith world must be marked first and foremost by Christ's love, Christ's likeness. But you know, our world is not too familiar with that. It's sort of the exception and not the rule. For instance, a woman I read about got on a bus, and when she got on the bus, a man got up and gave her his seat, and she fainted. Then when she came back to it, she thanked the man, and he fainted. So you see, neighborliness is more of an exception than a rule in our culture. A well-known minister said that he remembered a trip he took with his daughter to the Holy Land. It was really about a trip he and his daughter took back from Tel Aviv back to the States. He said because the plane was crowded and it was late leaving because of tight security checks, he said he got on the plane and suddenly realized that he and his daughter were not sitting together. There was an aisle between them. Well, he didn't have any time to go talk to the authorities, so he just thought the man next to his daughter would be kind enough to swap seats with him. Wrong. The man had settled down for the 10-hour trip, and he wasn't about to move. 
The minister said, please, may I sit by my daughter? The man refused. And so during the flight as they started, the man took his seat, the daughter took her seat, and the minister took his seat. Said during that flight, he, the minister said, I started trying to figure out how I would describe this guy, this jerk. He was probably a terrorist. But he said, just as he was getting ready to turn around and intimidate the man, he saw his daughter give the man a pretzel. And he said, that was his daughter fraternizing with the enemy. In other words, he took the pretzel as if an olive branch. And he said, the two of them sat down and went off to sleep. And then he said, he too also went off to sleep after he realized what God was trying to teach him. He said that God was trying to teach him certain things about his life. And that was when you get involved with ordinary people who are giving you problems, don't give them problems back, give them a pretzel. All of us are here by grace. Consequently, we need to share that grace with other people. You know that television program, The Survivor? The one problem with that program is that it's always trying to eliminate somebody. The Christian faith, on the other hand, is trying to include people. And so East Stanley Jones said, you belong to Christ, I belong to Christ, we belong to each other. How powerful that is. And then secondly, a true neighbor moves beyond generalities. Moves beyond generalities. Now, this lawyer asked two questions. One of these questions was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The second question was, who is my neighbor? Now, what was wrong with these two questions had to do with generalities and not specifics. Consequently, that he didn't make any good effect on anything because he didn't do things specific enough. Now, the priest in the story. The priest in the story was probably a good man, probably very likable. And I imagine as he was going down and saw that wounded man, he probably had it in his mind that he ought to help him. But then he waited just long enough for common sense to kill that idea of grace. It does that sometime, you know. But there may be another reason why that priest didn't help. In Numbers, we read that if you touch a dead person during the week, seven days you're unclean. So if that priest had touched that dead man, if he had been dead, then he would not have had the opportunity to participate in his priestly rituals for a week. The same thing may have been true. It may have been true of the Levite. The Levite was going down the road. Perhaps he sang in the temple choir, and he was late, and he needed to get there. Perhaps he just didn't have time to help somebody else. At any rate, he didn't. So there you have the lawyer, the priest, and the Levite. They were religious, all right, very religious, but their religion was so compromised by their generalities that they were not specifically able to do anything to help anybody. And that's something that we ourselves should be remembering as we consider this story, this story. But that wasn't true of the Samaritan. The Samaritan stopped and he actually ministered to this man with his own hands. He did everything he could with oil and all those kind of things, put him on his donkey, but he was ministering to him with his own hands. The Samaritan replaced generalities with specifics. I always think of Sister Kenny. She was a nurse way back in the bush country of Australia a number of years ago. One day, she called this doctor and she said, I have a number of people sick. And he replied, infantile paralysis, no known cure, do what you can. A year later, she called the same doctor back and she said, you know, two other children came down worse than those four, but all of them are well. The doctor said, wonderful, said, how crippled are they? She said, they're not crippled at all, they're normal. He said, well, 
what did you do? How did that happen? She said, I just used what I had, water and heats and blankets and my own hand. Do you see specific, not generalities? When we lived in Dallas, Texas, my wife broke her ankle. I was not with her the day she did it, but she broke her ankle in an accident and a, a lady in McDonald's saw her and went out there and ministered to her, called the ambulance and sat with her until the ambulance came. The lady in McDonald's even went back and forth bringing water so that mine would be comforted. But here again is specifics over generalities. Not long ago, the past couple of weeks, I read about a little baby who actually stopped breathing on an airplane trip. Immediately, another passenger jumped up and ran and administered emergency aid to this baby and saved the baby's life. You see, true neighborliness always involves something more than generalities. It always gets involved into specifics, how important that is. And then thirdly, a true neighbor, a true neighbor knows the importance of one. A true neighbor knows the importance of one. I always loved that old song. You remember? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. A true neighbor realizes the importance of one. If a Samaritan had been a visionary, he might have passed the fellow on that Jericho road. If he had looked at things like this, in the grand scheme of things, what is it going to mean if I help that neighbor? And he probably realized it wasn't going to stop any wars. It wasn't going to stop the Roman oppression. It wasn't going to make things better between the Jews and the Samaritans. It really wasn't going to do any of that. It wasn't going to do anything towards solving the major issues of the day. But what we need to remember is that as far as God is concerned, the individual is always more important than anything else. The individual. Now, let me ask you this question. How many sheep got lost before they became the object of the shepherd's search? One. How many coins got lost before they became the object of the woman's search? One. How many people did it take to challenge David, King David, to get out of his adulterous relationship and repent? One. How many people were necessary to prepare the way of the Lord? One. Do we understand? God cares about the individual. He cares about the individual. Now, Howard Hendricks was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary for 53 years. He said when he was in the fifth grade, his fifth grade teacher said, five of you are going to wind up in jail. And he said, three of them did. But he said he was saved by a sixth grade teacher who said, I've heard a lot about you, but I don't believe a word of it. Everybody needs somebody to say, I believe in you. Everybody needs that. I believe in you. And that's what Howard Hendricks did as a professor at the Asbury Theological Seminary. And some of the great evangelical preachers of the day were in his classes. Tony Evans, for instance. Chuck Swindoll, for instance. Bruce Wilkinson. David Jeremiah. You see, they picked up on the idea that they were believed in. The key is, I believe in you. Everybody needs to hear that message at some time or other. I believe in you. The importance of one. A true neighbor knows the importance of one. And then a true neighbor is always sensitive to neighborliness. Is always sensitive to neighborliness. Now, the Samaritan recognized the need of his neighbor out there on the road. Sometimes we don't recognize the need of our neighbor. Sometimes we need to ask God to help us to recognize our neighbors in need. Sometimes we need to do that. 
And if we're going to do that, some of us are going to have to make major adjustments in our lives. And you say, well, preacher, you start preaching now and going to meddling. I don't want you to meddle, but if it will help God's cause in our lives, so be it. If we're going to be a neighbor, we're going to have to get beyond our own little circle of friends. Heretic rubble, a thing to flout. I drew a circle and shut him out. If we don't get beyond our own little circle of friends, that's what we're doing, shutting people out. If I'm going to be a neighbor, I'm going to have to stop making excuses about service and ministry. One of the ministers of our day, Rick Warren, he mentioned these people and their excuses. Listen, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. David had family problems. Elijah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. And on and on it goes. What is our excuse? We're going to have to get over them if we're going to be neighbors. And thirdly, if we're going to be real neighbors, we're going to have to understand this story from the point of view of the victim. Now, I'm not talking about that man out there on the Jericho Road. I'm talking about that man hanging on the cross. We're going to have to understand this story from the point of view of the victim, the man hanging on the cross. What did he say? Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Who is my neighbor? It's a question of importance eternally. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this parable, a familiar parable that all of us have heard many, many times. My prayer is that we will hear it afresh and anew in these moments. And in these moments, we'll recommit ourselves to being a true neighbor to others. Lord, we know that one of the greatest needs in the world is for true neighbors. So help us to fulfill that responsibility to which you have called us. Thank you again for these people who are sharing this evening with us. Bless them and make them a blessing. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory for all things. Amen. Thank you very much for being a part of this, and I hope you have a pleasant rest of the evening. Good night.
Just to